This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Greece and the Reinvention of Politics by Alain Badou, translated by David Broder. In this book, one of the world's leading radical philosophers analyzes the failure of the Syriza experience in Greece. Over the last six years, Greece has provided the world with an open-air political lesson. The country's deep economic and social crisis has exposed the fundamental contradictions of the European Union, and indeed, the capitalist world as a whole. It has been a test case for movements seeking to put an end to the authoritarian anarchy of neoliberal capitalism. The Greek resistance to EU institutions and financial market hegemony offered a beacon of hope. Yet the movementist politics of 2011 could not build anything lasting, and Syriza's efforts as a party of government soon led to impasse. For Elan Badou, it is not enough to mourn this defeat. We must understand why such a vigorous opposition could fail. Greece, and the reinvention of politics, argues that an opposition of real consequence must revive the communist hypothesis, the vision of an alternative state structure. The orienting maxims that this hypothesis provides light the way for effective political action. Written in the storm of the crisis, the interventions collected in this book offer a path out of our contemporary powerlessness. Greece and the Reinvention of Politics by Alain Badou, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Teachers in West Virginia, a focal point of Trump-era liberal armchair ethnography, have won a historic statewide strike just as the Supreme Court is poised to rule in Janus, a case that will mark the culmination of a long right-wing effort to gut public sector unions. It's a scary time, but maybe also an exciting one. My guests today are Sarah Jaffe, a Nation Institute fellow and the author of Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt from Nation Books, and also Gabriel Winnant, a labor historian at Yale, at least for the next few weeks as he finishes up his dissertation. Gabriel has also worked as a union organizer and written extensively about the past and present of the movement. Before we get started, This show, I'm going to take a break from asking you to support this podcast with your money, just for one show, and ask you to support us on the propaganda front. So if you like this podcast, perhaps even love this podcast, please tell your friends in real life or on social media. I think we're doing something rather different here, and I know I have a bit of a bias, but the more people that find out about it, the better. So... Please share this episode or your favorite one. Okay, thank you so much, and here's the show. Sarah Jaffe and Gabriel Winnett, welcome to The Dig. Hello, thank you. Sarah, this is, uh, I believe, your third appearance, which means you've regained your crown as most frequent guests, you were in a tie briefly with uh, the likes of Aziz Rana and Kanga Yamada Taylor. 
I mean, that's but pretty good company. On, but you're back on top, so I win. But I, I have to talk for two and a half hours to be longer than Aziz Rana. So <laughs> yeah, that's no one will no one will beat the length of the the, the Field Sisters <laughs> came close close. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get into the the bigger picture, I just want to cover the specifics. Which, what were the particular grievances in West Virginia, and what and how did the strikers win? So in West Virginia, the the grievances were really simple. It was it was wages and benefits specifically. It was the fact that healthcare premiums were going up so much that they were causing like actual wage cuts. So there are plenty of other complaints about class sizes and underfunding and this, I think like a 700 teacher shortage, things like that. But the real demands that people went out on strike over were like fix our insurance system and give us the raise we haven't had in years. And I'd add that I think there was a, around healthcare, the teachers were facing this thing that is quite common in American workplaces now, where the employer uh, tries to actually monitor and regulate how you carry your body oh, yeah. over the course of the day. Oh, uh, my God. With fit, fit Go 365. Kind of thing, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Orwellian. <laughs> which, uh, you know, they would increase their healthcare premiums to the extent that they did not meet those criteria, uh, which anyone who has ever been in or around a classroom knows. You can't just move your body around as you like, right? You're not free to just right. go wherever you want over the course of the day, right? You have to be doing things all day long to kind of control the classroom and be monitoring the kids and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, it's fascinating that things like that are really the thing that can set people over the edge, right? That they're like, okay, you do not actually get to control me this much, that there are lines that you can't really cross even with in this country where we sort of cede to the employer a whole lot of rights to control us in ways that other countries would find just horrifying. And so what did they they win and how did they win it? Well, you see, they went on strike (laughs) and they shut down every school district in the state for nine straight days and they would not leave the capital until a bill was actually signed, which gave not only the teachers, not only school employees, but every single public sector employee in the state a 5% raise. I think it's worth adding here. Sarah said they needed a bill signed. Of course, West Virginia is one of the states where there's no public sector collective bargaining, which makes this a political strike, right? So we think of political strikes as when workers shut down their places um, places of work in order to achieve political goals of some kind. And classically, that's something like, you know, uh, you know, political strike against the war or something like that. Um, it's very interesting here to see uh, the political strike as a mechanism of sort of semi-direct bargaining, right? That actually the yeah. thing that they win is a law being passed. Right. You think about unions in places that don't have collective bargaining as they tend to just become sort of lobbying organizations, right? This is mostly what the unions in West Virginia, the teachers unions did before this, is they lobbied to get laws passed that would put things that normally a union would bargain over into state statutes. So things like um, a duty-free lunch, right? So teachers have a right to a lunch break without having to work during it, or a planning period during the school day. Like these are things that when I spoke to um, union folks there, they said were written into state law through their lobbying. But this was a point where the lobbying was not getting it done anymore. And the teachers, and this was, you know, very much organized by the rank and file teachers sort of talking to each other, finally, we're just like, we're going to have to do something. 
And three counties went out on strike first, and this has been noted by approximately everyone that the three counties (laughs) that went out on strike first, um, Logan County, Mingo County, and Wyoming County are coal counties, right? That Logan County is where Blair Mountain, the Battle of Blair Mountain, um, the Coal Wars took place. Mingo County is where Megwan is set, if you've ever seen it, which all of your your listeners... Everyone should watch the great movie. James Earl Jones is in it. Well, West Virginia has become this Rosetta Stone of sorts for liberals to figure out what's what's wrong with poor white people in the, right. the, the age of Trump. What does this strike tell us about what's wrong with that those prevailing liberal analyses? And obviously, there are also these conservative analyses as oh, yeah. exemplified by Hillbilly Elegy. Oh, God, yeah, please. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really interesting, right? The, the stories, the sort of totalizing narratives that we can tell ourselves about working people and the sort of problems with the quote unquote white working class, which is a term I would like to ban, um, that, you know, we have this idea of the working class now as being something that sort of exists in specific geographical spaces that are separate from those of us who read and write in places like the New York Times. And therefore, journalists have to sort of go on safari into the wilds of West Virginia in order to find some some authentic white people to interview. And, you know, that's gross on every level. Even if it was correct, it would still be a gross way to think about it. But like, more to the point, they're sort of going looking for Trump voters in West Virginia. And so unsurprisingly, perhaps you find Trump voters when you go looking for them in West Virginia. You could also find them in Long Island, um, but they don't tend to go looking for, you know, working class white Trump voters in Long Island. Well, what's really remarkable, actually, is if you go read a lot of the stories, you know, that, that Sarah's talking about, the kind of parachuting into West Virginia or whatever type of stories, um, if you read them closely, you'll notice that a lot of the people who wind up getting interviewed um, actually are healthcare workers and teachers, because that's the only source of employment in these places. Um, and so you know, if you were looking for working class people in the Rust Belt somewhere, it's who you're going to find. Um, and I, I sort of made a hobby of this, of going and just you know paying attention to the genre and reading for it. And time mm-hmm. after time after time, you, you see that this is actually who they're interviewing, although the story is invariably about the coal miners or steel workers who used to be there. Right, right. And it's really interesting when you, you, know, you talk to the teachers whose parents, whose grandparents were coal miners, right? Um, I interviewed Leah Clay Stone, was um, a union leader and one of the strikers, obviously, from Logan County. And she, you know, she told me stories about, like, they used to go drink on Blair Mountain in high school. You know, this was like the party place where kids would go and learning about this stuff, but learning about it from her dad, who was a coal miner up through the 1980s. And so this was, you know, this is the working class. When you think about this idea of sort of the old dying working class versus the new whatever working class, like the continuity is very, very real in this strike. Um, The way that the teachers were wearing the red bandanas to evoke the, you know, the Battle of Blair Mountain, um, which funnily enough, speaking of weird stereotypes of the white working class, right, that's where the term redneck comes from. Is from the red bandanas that they wore. And, you know, now we think of a redneck as like the stereotypical Trump voter, right? Um, One thing that um, this strikes me, strike makes clear is this this problem with a certain variant of workerist left accounts that that's, 
right? That celebrate the manufacturing labor as the right. end all be all of, of the working class and right. see, you know, the quote unquote knowledge economy, including academia. And there are many who, who, who shit on that as a uh, site of struggle as, yeah. as irrelevant. And Sarah, you wrote their message is a reminder that despite pollsters tendency to make a college degree, the dividing line between working and middle class, the categories are often not so clear cut. The reality is right. that college-educated workers, too, have to fight for decent wages and benefits. Yeah. Um, so what, what does this strike teach us about the American working class and the way forward? Well, I mean, we should contextualize this in, in just a minute because there is also a strike going on that they may actually have a deal, as I just saw on Facebook, um, at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, right, of graduate student workers. Um, and Gabe can tell us all about that experience. But, like, yes, we have this, um, you know, this this precarization of these white-collar workforces that gets sort of written off. And, like, there are several discourses around this that all sort of get it wrong. Like, there's the privilege idea, right, that if you have a college degree, then you're automatically, like, a privileged worker who therefore has no cause to identify with the working class. Um, then there's this idea that like the working class is only specific people who are usually in everybody's mind, right? White dudes in hard hats um, who do very specific jobs and everybody else, whether they're, you know, doing care work for minimum wage or even less than minimum wage is somehow not a real worker. And this was like written into law by, you know, Justice Alito's Supreme Court decision in Harris versus Clinton, where he literally argued that home care workers were a different kind of worker. Companions. Right. Not their partial public employees is what, um, you know, what Alito wrote. Yeah, I think it's worth adding here that, that uh, so there's a category of types of work that we think of as the professions, right, which are um, various medical things, nursing, uh, medicine, and then Engineering, academia, law, etc. Um, generally, right, they require a college degree now. Uh, if you go back to the late 19th century, uh, that stratum of activities was not actually always so distinct from a stratum of activities that doesn't exist at all anymore, which is sort of very high-skill craft industrial production. You could be a very high-skill, you know, printer or something like that, and be in the same kind of social world as a lawyer or a doctor or something along those lines. The result of this is that um, starting in the late 19th century and across much of the 20th, there was a process by which uh, different versions of these skilled occupations either got ground down into mass production and industrial work or kind of attempted to lift themselves up and reorganize themselves as what we would now call professions. And every profession has had a massive internal debate at some point, in some cases at one point, in many cases for a century about how to organize itself internally and how to actually pursue the collective interests of the profession. You see it in nursing, you see it in medicine, you see it in law, you see it in academia, in social work. Um, whether the profession ought to be organized kind of as a guild and lobby for its interest as a kind of a lobby and try to you know, control credentialing processes, or whether it ought to organize itself as a kind of labor. Uh, in general, we, the things that we think of as professions, we think of that way because the guild side won out. And that results in that occupation being seen as a profession rather than as a type of work. Uh, so, you know, we can see some of the results of that in how in, in some of these conversations you guys are talking about, about what types of workers are seen as work and not. 
Yeah. And also, you know, when we think about who is seen as a worker and who is not, it's incredibly gendered, right? We're, all, we're talking on International Women's Day where, you know, workers around the world have called for, once again, a women's strike of paid and unpaid women's work, right? So when we're talking about women's work has always been shaped by this idea that it's done for love and not for money. And that is absolutely at play when we're talking about teachers and how little money teachers are generally made and how they're expected to just sort of like eat any garbage that's thrown at them from, you know, the state legislature or whatever, because they love the kids and they care about the kids. And how, how could you possibly go on strike because the kids, the kids, the kids, well, the teachers in West Virginia were literally like buying food from their own pockets to make sure that kids who rely on a hot lunch at school didn't go hungry while they were on strike. They definitely care about the kids. They would also like to be able to feed their own kids. And this is precisely where teachers unions begin in Chicago way back when. Is that right? Yeah, in the first years of the 20th century. And, you know, some of the divide that uh, I was talking about just now, right, um, appear even in the structure of teacher unionism, right, with what AST having its origins and the side of the argument for uh, a kind of industrial orientation to teaching work and what became the NEA having orientation toward a more professional side. Um, And as Sarah is suggesting, a huge amount of that debate is structured by how people want to relate to the gender norms that govern teaching, right? And the way that actually going for the kind of industrial side of that argument involves a decision to defy some set of gender norms, at least partially, right? And to um, participate in forms of protest and forms of contentious activity that, uh, you know, people understand would be stepping out of expected gender roles. Right, one of the first teacher strikes in history was in St. Paul, Minnesota, and it was for equal pay for women teachers explicitly. Um, And I should give a shout out to the St. Paul teachers who came this close to being on strike the week before the West Virginia teachers went out. So we could have had even more teacher strikes happening, but they got an actually quite impressive contract um, that included things like um, restorative justice practices in schools, stuff like that. And they explicitly had challenged the big corporations that were dodging taxes in Minnesota while paying a bunch of money to be on the Super Bowl host committee this year. Um, So this is all, it's all very interesting. One of the other things, bringing this back to West Virginia, is that because there's no collective bargaining in the state, you have both, you have teachers who are members of the AFT West Virginia, you have teachers, members of the West Virginia Education Association in the same schools, um, working together on this strike in a way that was really unprecedented. And I would love to know more about the history of how those two unions have broken down and how people sort of chose one or the other in a state where like neither one of them was just the union that represents your school district, like usually is usually the case. What do we, we know at this point in terms of how it all got started in terms of on the ground organizing, because one thing that's noteworthy here is that these job actions ultimately at some point became a wildcat strike. Can you explain the the what the on the ground organizing was, to what degree there there were differences between union officials and rank and file, and to what degree um, it wasn't so much differences, but officials following the rank and file. What what do we know about how this actually developed? So I think that there is. Um, I'm going to probably piss some people off by saying this. There has been a little bit more hay made out of the wildcat strike part of this than I think is actually warranted, um, because again, we're talking about 
two union, three unions actually, because there's a school employees union as well, who don't have any framework for going on strike to begin with. So this was all being done seat of their pants, you know, again, when I was- So I.e. any strike would in some way be a wildcat strike? Sort of. Um, so like what, what did happen was that, you know, um, representatives from the unions were meeting with state legislators, the governor, um, and came out with the announcement that they had a deal. And the teachers on the ground were instantly sort of like, okay, but we need to like see it get passed. And they decided to stay out until something got passed. And then the state legislators um, immediately indicated that they were not going to go through with what had been promised anyway. And so this suddenly becomes in the sort of story of the, well, frankly, from the left, um, as like, oh, my God, they're defying the union bureaucrats. And I really want to say to people from the left that when you start talking about fat cat union bureaucrats, <laughs> you sound like a right winger. You don't sound <laughs> radical. You sound like a right winger, which is not to say that, like, there have not been really, really important developments in the last several years within teachers unions specifically um, with radical movements within the unions with um, rank and file caucuses like the one that took over the Chicago Teachers Union, um, taking power in the union and really challenging the way that things had been done. Like this is an important thing that happens within labor that we need to talk about, but we also need to stop seeing every single thing that happens through a lens of like union bureaucracy, bad, rank and file, good. Because when we're talking about rank and file rebellions in recent years, we should also talk about the rank and file rebellion of a bunch of teachers in New York City wearing We Love the NYPD shirts because the union leadership endorsed a march in support of Eric Garner, who was killed by the NYPD. Yeah, There's I my rant. Gabe, you probably have uh, some things to add. I, I, I generally agree <laughs> with that rant. Um, I would add to it. You know, I think there's an interesting question here, which we really – to my knowledge, don't know the answer to, which is, um, you know, any workplace has a kind of organic social structure of leadership, right? And when people talk about spontaneous working class action uh, that just sort of like bubbles up naturally, uh, they're, what they're really talking about, right, is the organic structure of leadership that already exists there and they, just, they don't happen to know who it is or, uh, you know, who, who actually is playing that role. Um, it's more spontaneously so think, becoming visible than spontaneously emerging. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, now, I think like what we're seeing in, in 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 this case is an interesting thing that's happened, where you know there used to be industrial employment and it's not anymore. Uh, where the social leadership, not just in the workplace, but of the whole community, clearly rests, right, has has transitioned some with the labor market, as we've been talking about. And you know who that actually rests with, I don't know. But I remember when the strike was starting, I having a conversation with people they are saying, you know, teachers are who there is in these places who actually have employment, who clearly play a really key mm -hmm. sort of functional role in holding a community together. It makes sense that they would have a kind of a leadership. And, um, you know, I, like, I don't know if it's new teachers who are behind this, longstanding teachers, right? It would be sort of easy to think that there are people who've been in the community for a really long time and have connections to the old industry and this kind of thing, but I really don't know the answer. Yeah, and I think one of the things that, that you see happening here, right, is that, like, in this narrative of the wildcat strike, you have this idea that there is, like, you know, that the union, again, that the, that the union bureaucrats were sort of fighting the teacher, the rank and file leadership, which was not really the case. Like, they were clearly following something that was 
welling up from the grassroots. And, and, you know, I think they, I spoke to people in union leadership as well as to rank and file teachers. And they were very clear about like teachers organize this themselves in all 55 counties, that this is coming from the grassroots and we are doing what the teachers want to do, you know, and that brought Randy Weingarten from, you know, the national president of the AFT down to walk a pick, uh, well, not walk a picket line to join the Capitol protest in West Virginia. Like that is clearly true. Um, and it's important to say, but like there, the, the sort of moment that's getting fetishized here is the moment where union leadership said we had a deal and the teachers sort of stayed out. And like, you know, this is part of what happens in, well, at least some context when you're on a, a strike in general, right? Is it like the leadership will or the negotiating committee will come back with a tentative deal and then the members will vote on it. This is not like a weird thing that happened to say that like the members sort of looked at what was announced and said like, nah, I mean, it's rare that people vote down that contract, but like, it's not, you know, it was a big deal in 2012 where the Chicago teachers took a couple of extra days so that everybody could read the proposed deal. Right. Because people were like, Oh my God, go ahead. Uh, I also think the pattern is, more often the reverse in many, right? Like the question for, for negotiators is very often, uh, is rank and file militancy sufficient to sustain an ongoing struggle for a better right. deal? Right. Um, now, I think in this case, it looks like the leaders of the teachers unions were wrong about that probably or were surprised by the degree to which rank and file leadership mm-hmm. was, was more ready to fight and more willing to go longer than they were. Yeah. Um, one can imagine fairly easily, right, how some years of being in the position of that leadership in a place like West Virginia would lower yeah. their expectations. Of what well, and possible. also the thing that they, the thing, so the 5% that they eventually got for everyone was on offer in that original deal. Um, and it was 5% for the teachers and apparently for the cops, um, and then 3% for everybody else. And so the thing that they stayed out for was not themselves. And I think that's actually more important than sort of jumping on whether like the, you know, the leadership screwed up or, or this was a challenge to the leadership. The fascinating thing is that they stayed out for people who weren't them. They stayed out for everybody else in the state who also hadn't had a raise. Which again, they recognize that the teachers had the power. uh, Which again speaks to one, the leadership position of teachers in, you know, the labor market that exists yeah. now, and two, the transformed labor market, right? That uh, essentially the lines of work that are attached to, uh, or either directly as public employment or in one way or another to kind of public subsidy, uh, right. are what has have generally at least, you know, continued to exist, if not grown and prospered in many cases, um, in places where other forms of employment have wilted. And so it makes sense that you would have teachers in a kind of vanguard role in those kinds of towns. I mean, I'm here for teachers being the vanguard of the revolution. <laughs> where, where, where didn't they win in West Virginia? It seems that they didn't get a guarantee on health insurance. Is that right? And yeah. there's also Republican leadership in the state that yeah. is this pledging is the, to make up the other for the shoe, right? with cuts yeah. to Medicaid in particular, which Governor Justice has uh, a Democrat-turned-Republican billionaire, mine... Cole, Cole Billionaire. Cole. Cole Billionaire. Cole, Cole Air, um, 
think who, who owes too, right? back taxes to his own state, owes billions of dollars in back taxes to both West Virginia and Kentucky. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Jim Justice. He's a great guy. Great dude who announced he was um, shockingly switching from Democrat to Republican with Donald Trump on a visit to mm-hmm. the state. But Wait. but he says, he, um, like a good populist Trump type guy, mm-hmm. that it will not come out of M- Medicaid. But other Republican leaders in the state, I think maybe the Senate, state Senate, are saying that it yeah. will. So explain w- where it fell short, even though it's clearly a remarkable victory. Well, so, yeah, the question would have been, as Gabe was saying, right, do, do you have have enough rank and file militancy to stay out until the state writes its budget for the next couple of years, because that's where the cuts will come in, right? Is that's where we'll see where they get um, made or not made is going to be the budget fight. And, you know, I, I imagine that that was probably a thing that might not have happened. Um, maybe it would have, we don't know. But the other question is, is, the insurance thing is, well, we know that health insurance is a giant, hor- horrible mess in this country anyway, right? And so the teachers sort of say, like, you know, we, we know that the health insurance thing is a complicated fix, that there's not, like, as easy a thing you can pass to fix it right now, but that they won a, a temporary freeze on their premiums. Um, I think the end of that Go365 program was one of the first things to get tossed out, Um and they're going to have hearings on the health insurance thing, I believe, in every county. So the, the next question, and that's clearly like the next place for organizing, is to bring people out, turn people out to those and try to take the momentum that they had in the Capitol and turn it into those things. And like, you know, whatever ends up happening here, there's going to be a million people um, second guessing it and saying, you know, that if the teachers had just stayed out for longer, they could have had the, you know, glorious revolution or something like that, because people always want to say that. Um, But it's going to be several more fights, basically, going forward. Yeah, I would add to that, um, you know, I think one, in terms of how long do they stay out, how long should they have stayed out, um, I think from afar, it's quite tempting to ignore the enormous pressures that, I mean, anyone on strike is under, but in particular, someone in the position of a teacher in West Virginia on strike these last couple of weeks, right? I mean, the power of the strike is the same thing that makes it difficult to sustain, which is that it induces a kind of state of emergency, right? Uh, the schools are shut down, which means kids can't go to school, which means, I mean, as Sarah was saying, you know, they have to organize alternate meal plans for them, but also all the parents with child care responsibilities that they now have on their lap, can they go to work given that? Right? There's a whole set of things that get paralyzed by teachers going on strike, which, again, is what makes it powerful, but also uh, I think we have yet to really hear that much about what I'm sure was there, which is the immense individual level pressure that some huge number of teachers were surely under from people in their lives to go back to work. Um, so that's just worth bearing in mind. Uh, the and they're teachers because is, they want to be in the classroom teaching their students. So it's not like they're as much as they might be enjoying the militancy of, of rebellion and striking there. Uh, when you are someone like a teacher, it has to, pull at you that that you're not in the classroom teaching your students because your students do need you in no way to defend people who blame teachers for this you know what i mean but but that that's got to be a complex set of feelings yeah the other thing i'd say just around uh this question on medicaid is uh i I haven't i haven't done this research systematically but uh to kind of continue a point i was starting to make before i would bet you anything that if you look at any county in west virginia uh 
any county in West Virginia, actually. Uh, the amount of employment in healthcare and social assistance is one, above the national level, and two, the largest sector in the state. Um, yeah. Right? It's an old state. Like, any, like all the industrialized parts of the country are demographically older because young people leave. Um, right. And, uh, you know, there's a whole host of public health problems that, you know, the Rust Belt is now experiencing that we've heard a lot about in terms of chronic right. pain and, you know, opioid addiction and all this kind of thing. And in um, coal country in particular, you've got black lung. Exactly, yeah. Um, Which is coming so back strong, that, I read recently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really <laughs> right. scary. Right, as, as, as the coal industry has been deunionized um, and the Mine Safety and Health Administration has been uh, like defunded and, and shrunk. Um, right. Given all of that, uh, healthcare is, you know, even more so than teaching, actually the largest sector of employment. And like by quite a lot in places like West Virginia. And so it's interesting to see the fight getting displaced from one public sector form of employment. Now, you know, to see some number of Republicans at least trying to displace it onto the next one, right? Which when you're talking about, are we going to cut Medicaid to a significant degree, then what you're going to be talking about is, are we going to cut the wages of this other, not technically public workforce in a lot of cases, but essentially public workforce, right? Given who's writing all the checks. Um, Right. And a workforce that's similar to all the, these same sets of pressures around gender, around professionalism, uh, around mm-hmm. public service that the teachers are subject to. So right. I think it's both exciting, but also kind of, you know, there's a lot to consider in terms of how to now roll this fight into the very similar sector that it's now touching on directly. Right. And it's not, you know, for everybody who is very, very excited when there was a strike to keep paying attention now that it's gone, right? Now that the big spectacle of the Capitol being filled with teachers wearing lobster costumes and stuff is gone, we still have to actually pay attention. Like we owe it to these people who gave us a thrill for the last nine days to actually give them the same support and solidarity that when they're fighting this, you know, much less spectacular, much more sort of grueling and miserable and wonky battle that's coming. And attention, holding one's attention is is hard. I was just talking to Lester Spence about this a few yeah. weeks ago, but we, you know, our everyone's attention really left Baltimore's ongoing, long running crisis when people stopped rebelling in the streets. Yeah, yeah, and Flint still does not have clean water, right? That we can, you know, and that's like we we sort of like it's almost like the litany now on the left, right? I hear that like we're all we'll sort of say like, and Flint still doesn't have clean water, like, but it's this reminder of like the problems are so big and they're so scary, and like strikes are great and they shift the balance of power in society. And if we actually see a strike wave coming out of this, that would be amazing. But also like a lot of the problems we have to fix are messy and complicated and don't get fixed with something that looks like a big party. You guys are are, are both labor experts, not West Virginia <laughs> experts. But I do want to ask in, in somewhat defense of the armchair ethnographers of the white working class that I was making fun of earlier, West Virginia has undergone a pretty incredible political shift, at least in terms of partisan allegiance. Not very long ago, it was one of the most solidly democratic states in the country. And it went for Trump, I believe, by one of the largest yet- margins. Being one of those solidly democratic states, those teachers never got collective bargaining rights. Under the Weird pa- how yeah. that works, isn't it? 
Yeah. So weird how that works, but that never happened. Um, I was trying to look this up just to make sure like, nope, that, that never happened when all the states were giving public employees collective bargaining rights in the sixties and seventies. Nope. All those Democrats, they'd done so much for working people. Yeah. And so like, obviously the liberal account is crap. The story, no, but the story in West Virginia is not so much that like everybody became a Republican. The story is that people stopped giving a shit. And like, that's really, you know, when you look at the voter turnout, um, right, that like Hillary Clinton got fewer votes than the Democratic primary, where, which Bernie Sanders won, we should say, like not to be all Bernie would have won. But like there is. A As Sarah real... Jones tweeted, maybe there is a reason. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe I, just maybe you know, there's an interesting well, I mean, reason that he won. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that this is a real, you know, when we look at, at the voter turnout in the general election was really low that the story in many of these places was not that like there was a big, huge shift among the quote unquote white working class, which again is a term that I would like to ban um, to Trump. It's that like most people didn't vote at all. And that's the real story. And that's the thing we actually have to think about changing. Um, and when you look at, you know, the, the Democrats that have been on offer from West Virginia, Jim Justice was elected as a Democrat. Look at that guy. He's great. Um, Joe Manchin, Sarah Jones, is, we should talk about because she's been doing great reporting on the sort of political context of this strike and the, the cuts that Joe Manchin made when he was in charge, um, still the senator. You know, you're you're looking at a state that has been systematically gutted by both parties that has been they have allowed coal companies and now natural gas companies to run roughshod over the state to destroy the bodies and the lives of the workers. And the, you know, the sort of geography of the state has been changed by mountaintop removal. Um, this is why people don't vote. <laughs> like It's right there. Um, and what they showed with the strike also is that like you can win not just by voting for the right people, but by actually making yourself impossible to ignore and changing the, the entire political context in which either political party has to operate. Yeah. I just add to that. I agree with all of that. The, the reasons that Democrats don't win West Virginia anymore are the same reasons that, you know, voter turnout for Hillary Clinton fell in Milwaukee or in Philadelphia. Um, yeah. has to do with social class of the, that owns the Democratic Party increasingly and the subordinate position of the working class to that, you know, owning class. Um, you can, yeah, you you can play that with a Janet Jackson song, What Have You Done For Me Lately? Yeah, right. Jim Justice, as you've been saying, right, is a coal operator, right? I mean, like the the ancient class enemy of the West Virginia working class, right? Like the right. coal operators, the villains of the West Virginia story. Yeah. Uh, and he's governor and was elected, you know, endorsed by he was Joe Manchin's protege. Joe Manchin right. himself, his, I don't know if folks know this, his do, his daughter uh, runs a pharma company based in West Virginia that's one of the major opioid producers. It's just like the you know the, the and and is the EpiPen profiteers. I. I believe. Oh, maybe that's what I'm thinking of, actually. Um, in either case, right? It's just like the phone call is coming from inside the house here, right? Like right, the, the right. Democrats are not are not the friend. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean that votes for Trump were like right or something. It's just that it's not. No. It's not. It's not the interesting or important question. Uh, I think no. you know, there's a story around this guy. Uh, I'm sure you both have followed Richard Ojeda, who's running for state, uh, running for Congress. He's a state senator in the in the yeah. uh, coal coal part of the state. Yeah, and he's been like and, a know, militant he, supporter of the teachers, right? Or yeah, and yeah, then he also voted for teachers Trump. And, and he, right, oh, and he also voted for wow. Trump. Um, and, yeah, he voted for Bernie in the primary, then Trump in November, and he now regrets the vote and whatever. And like that's a real phenomenon. Um, oh yeah, but not but just in West Virginia. 
Right. The answer to it is not like, well, I'll put it this way. As the sociology of the Democratic Party's leadership has shifted right, over the last 30 or 40 years and become increasingly a kind of like professional class party, um, then is leadership's ability to actually understand what working class people of a multiracial American working class want and think and will do has gotten worse and worse. Uh, leading to systematic misreading of voter behavior like you get in West Virginia, like you're talking about, or like you get in Milwaukee or Philadelphia as, you know, some product of a combination of laziness, irrationality, whatever, um, as opposed to a response to the party's own decisions and the party's own behaviors. Right. Right. And this, this sort of tendency, I mean, I, I talk about this all the time, right? The tendency of people all over the place to assume that working people are stupid. Um, and this is, this is true of Democrats. This is true of far too many people who call themselves leftists. Um, it is certainly true of conservatives. It's certainly true of every single person who read Hillbilly Elegy, and, except for the people who read it just to write mean critiques of it, like our friend Sarah Jones and Elizabeth Cat. Um, that you, you, you know, they're, they're just like, we have told ourselves again that like working people are the other, they're something else. We're, we're, the working class is the majority of American society still. This is not like some small group of people that are over here somewhere that you have to figure out how to talk a foreign language to. And yet we just, you know, the, the constant discussion is sort of like, what does the working class want? What does it need? Who are these workers? Um, and it's just like, come on, people, like you don't live in that much of a bubble. There's only one way to find out, which is turning over the entire letters page to Trump voters. It's the only way, Sarah. Oh, God. Um, I have to go to a union action, as a matter of fact. Well, (laughs) Um, on that excellent note. um, Okay, Gabe is going to uh, leave us now, um, and we're going to continue with Sarah Jaffe. Gabe, Gabriel Winnett, thank you very much for, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Nice talking to you both. We'll see you soon. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Right to Have Rights by Stephanie DeGoyer, Alistair Hunt, Lita Maxwell, and Samuel Moyne, with an afterword from Astra Taylor. Sixty years ago, the political theorist Hannah Arendt, an exiled Jew deprived of her German citizenship, observed that before people can enjoy any of the inalienable rights of man, before there can be any specific rights to education, work, voting, and so on, there must first be such a thing as the right to have rights. The concept received little attention at the time, but in our age of mass deportations, Muslim bans, refugee crises, an extra-state war, the phrase has become the center of a crucial and lively debate. Here, five leading thinkers from varied disciplines, including history, law, politics, and literary studies, discuss the critical basis of rights and the meaning of radical democratic politics today. The Right to Have Rights by Stephanie DeGoyer, Alistair Hunt, Lita Maxwell, and Samuel Moyne, with an afterword from Astor Taylor. Out now from Verso Books. I have another question about the role played by King Cole in the state 
um, and the fact that it's been joined by the the barons of natural gas. And that is that the the special treatment they receive in the state came to the fore during the strike. Is that right? Yeah. So we saw teachers talking about this, right? There was a oh, somebody, a friend of mine who was down there posted this great picture of a teacher who had made a sign, like a, um, a giant golden egg on a black background that was like, follow the money. And it was, you know, like, where is the money? Where is the golden egg? The energy companies are the golden egg. Um, that, of course, nobody will touch. And like Jim Justice made a big dramatic deal about talking about taxing the gas companies because like, you know, he's a coal billionaire, so he doesn't really care if you try to tax the gas companies. But like, this has been true of, of, it's not just true in West Virginia, right? To say that um, we our politicians, not really we, um, tend to think that the way to quote unquote, you know, get some economic development or whatever is to give corporations whatever the hell they want. Um, we're looking at like Amazon shopping around for where to put its new headquarters, right? And they can do whatever they want. And we have to let them do whatever they want. And if we sneeze in their direction, then they'll leave. And the interesting thing about, of course, like natural gas extraction, coal extraction is like, you can't leave. It's there. You either have to take it out of West Virginia or not get it. And <laughs> it's under so the ground. Of, little... it's, it's in the ground in particular places that are ruled by particular uh, I mean, I governments. suppose you could like go into Kentucky and like drill under the state line. Horizontally, like, yeah. Me, you know, I drink your milkshake. Um, was that from uh, There Will Be Blood, right? Where he talks about like drilling the oil. Oh, man. Anyway, um, that's a great movie. Everybody should watch it. Um, it is about capitalism and how it's bad. <laughs> so, but yeah, and so it's a really interesting thing, right? Because like you can't threaten to like pack up and move the coal. But still, when you saw Trump, right, Trump was talking about we're going to bring the coal jobs back. And like the new boogeyman is, you know, is not taxes with that stuff. It's environmental regulations. And the environmentalists are are making, you know, making it so that we have regulations so we can't, um, you know, have the coal jobs anymore. And a billboard I saw know, in Western Pennsylvania blamed it on Robert Redford. Robert Redford, huh? Okay. Um, but like, you know, and Hillary Clinton sort of unfortunately for her campaign played into this by sort of saying that like, you know, we're going to put a lot of coal miners out of work. And she was talking to be fair to Hillary Clinton in, she was talking about sort of, we have to actually have a plan for what's going to happen to these people. But it just got played over and over again as this clip about Hillary Clinton wants to put coal miners out of work. And so these are the sort of boogeymen of all of this. But there's just been, and again, we're talking about Democrats and Republicans being totally unwilling to challenge these companies in any real way in the state and what that has meant for you know, again, the bodies of workers, like when you think about coal mining, coal mining is a miserable, hard job that kills you young. There is nothing glamorous or fun about it, right? When we're talking about people who miss coal jobs, who want the coal jobs back, they don't miss going down into the earth to dig up coal. I very much doubt it. I have never talked to somebody who wants to like really misses spending their day digging coal out of the ground and breathing coal dust. But what people miss and what people like what makes people feel sort of attached to the coal companies is in the absence of anything better this was a job that paid you well enough to you know have a, a sort of you know a decent life 
And so when you talk about these companies, this is a very long way of getting around to a point, I swear. Um, what, when you talk about these companies and you talk about being willing to challenge them in this state, it's actually really hard. It actually takes a lot for people to say like, oh, wait, these companies could pay more in taxes. They could do more for us. Because the narrative for the last several decades has been we have to do anything possible to keep these jobs here, to keep these extractive jobs here. Anything that might make them mad, might make them like look at us funny, we can't do. So it's actually a really big deal to think about people in West Virginia thinking about and talking about the extractive economy and what it's done to them and what it you know, and how it should pay more in taxes, how it should pay more for the right to exploit the people in the land in West Virginia. Something I discussed with Patrick Blanchfield in my last episode, which is on on guns, was how remarkable it is that the strike took place at the very same at, at the very same moment that that Trump and others have been calling for arming teachers Right. Yeah. How do you, how do you yeah. parse this moment for public education oh, and public so educators? Weird. Because like at the same time, on the one hand, for for years, public education and public educators have been under this historic attack, privatization, right. severely cut budgets, the conversion of classrooms into into test prep boot camps. Um, yeah. And then we have the strike, and we also have them being called on to be armed defenders of their students. Yeah. And, you know, after the, the call to arm the teachers, right? Um, well, two things. One was that teachers started a, a hashtag on social media, arm me with, right? And saying like, I need, we need funding. We need better, you know, services. We need social workers in our schools. We need school meals, like all the things that they actually need to do their job, which isn't a gun. Um, and then the other thing is that, like, in Florida, where they passed a bill that would train, quote-unquote, school marshals to be, um, you know, armed people in classrooms, armed teachers and whatever in the schools, um, this is where, right, the Parkland shooting was, where three teachers who were unionized teachers died. They took up in the same legislative session where they talked about where they pass this thing to um, arm teachers and where they refused to pass like an assault weapons ban. And they also took up a bill that would bust teachers unions, um, that would bust public sector unions. And that is just like, <laughs> it's so telling, right? It's like you want, we have, we've just found apparently millions of dollars. I forget what the number is. I don't have it open in front of me um, to teach teachers how to shoot people. But we have to make excuses and, and bust their unions and try to drive their wages down even lower. Yeah, it's like, you know, this long running process of eviscerating, you know, deeper socioeconomic security while yeah. emphasizing carceral security, national security, state security, and also the privatized, individualized armed security of the of the concealed carrier. Well, and if you think about the teacher you know, the teacher being expected to like put their bodies on the line. Um, there was a great sign from West Virginia actually where the teacher said like, I would take a bullet for your kids, but my health insurance won't cover it. <laughs> um, which was brilliant. But like, if you think about the expectation that like teachers will literally jump in front of a, a shooter 
for their students. If you think about the fact, the expectation that they would like get into a firefight with a dude with an AR-15, which presumably the teachers are not going to have like AR-15 strapped to their back while they're teaching math, but maybe, I don't know. Um, if you expect that, that is like the, we're extending the idea of the labor of love, like so far out, right. That you not only must love our kids enough to like, have crappy wages and lousy health insurance and come to work when you're sick and all of that. But you must literally be willing to die for this job. You got to be a mama grizzly. Right. It's just bonkers to think about, right. That like, and at that same time, we are going to take your money away. We are going to cut your health insurance and cut your wages. And like, but we, it's, it's just like the most extreme example of like do more with less, like literally be willing to die for your kids. Well, and if you really did it just because you love the kids instead of for your own selfish purposes, then you wouldn't need these these good wages and and health insurance. Right. I mean, well, you know, you don't need health insurance if you're dead. So I guess maybe that's the plan. I don't know. It's really but it's really bonkers when you think about this, right? That like this idea of what we expect of teachers. Um, of care workers is just so, so extreme. Sarah, put this into the context of other recent militant labor uprisings. I'm thinking of the (laughs) Chicago teacher strike, the rebellion in Wisconsin against Scott Walker. You can add whatever else you want to that list, but those are the two that come to mind for me. Yeah, I mean, those those are the two that are obvious, right? Like, it looked like Wisconsin. You had people singing and dancing in the Capitol, right? After they announced the second deal, the one that they took, their teachers did like a sing-along and were singing, you know, um, I'm not going to sing because my singing voice is terrible, about um, will you sign that bill? And, you know, they're all wearing red. And, yeah, I mean, it looked very much like Wisconsin in 2011. Um, the, The visual parallels were really striking to me. And then, of course, in Chicago, you have this militant teacher strike that, again, sort of galvanized the state, became a national story, and really did sort of bring back the strike among teachers unions, right? And at least even in, in places we haven't seen as many major strikes as, as the one in Chicago, but the Chicago teachers came down to the strike deadline um, last year, two years ago, and last year, because it was two years ago that they had the um, one-day strike on, on uh, April 1st during labor notes. Okay. And... We've seen, so we've seen more teachers unions. I mentioned St. Paul already, um, Portland, um, a few others that I have covered that I can't think of off the top of my head have come very, very close to a strike and then gotten a, a deal because the you know mayors and, and school boards didn't want to be the new Rahm Emanuel. And so, yeah, looking at all of that, like this is part of a, a an ongoing shift in how we think about labor. And, you know, it still hasn't brought back the strike. Doug Henwood loves to bring up that uh, strike frequency chart just to remind me not to get too excited. (laughs) (laughs) And like, you know, okay, so talking about the strike frequency chart, because what it shows is that like strikes just dropped dead in this country after PATCO, after Ronald Reagan busted the air traffic controllers union. And again, that was, it was an illegal strike, right? They, they theoretically did not have the legal right to strike. It was a public sector union. and That had endorsed Reagan. Sent a, right, that had endorsed Reagan. Um, I should teach you some things. But anyway, um, not like endorsing, you know, Jimmy Carter did anything for um, whatever. <laughs> Jimmy Carter also invoked the Taft-Hartley to 
force people back to work, whatever. Um, they're all terrible is all I'm saying. But, no objection. But like, you know, so when, when you look at that, that was a public sector strike that was completely crushed, right? That, that he fired them all and made sure they could never work in this job again, hired all new people, um, just really just destroyed this union. And what that did was it, it didn't just shut down public sector strikes, it shut down strikes. And so the, the flip side is that like when you see strikes anywhere, that can also drive them back up, right? So you see militancy, working class militancy tends to um, feed itself, right? Um, there's this piece that um, Matt Stoller wrote during the Wisconsin uprising that I always think of, right? Where he, he wrote like, people might only like unions when they see strikes, that the strike is you know, it's challenging, it's difficult, you actually have to do a lot of work to make sure you keep the public with you when you are doing something that is making their life more difficult. But it's also a demonstration of what unions actually do. Yeah. And what unions actually are, right? And I I, um, I must give a shout out to my editor at the New York Times, who we were having an email conversation about the piece that I wrote for them about West Virginia. And I made sort of an offhand, you know, comment about my newsies rule, um, which the movie and musical. I don't know if it's in the musical. I haven't seen the musical. But in the movie Newsies, right, which is about the newsboy strike, um, Christian Bale has this wonderful, like, wide-eyed moment where he looks into the camera and goes, but if we go on strike, then we're a union. And it's like, (laughs) and, but that's true, right? That, like, this is what's happened with FI for 15. It's like, it's, you don't actually win a union at the NLRB. You win a union by acting together. And that demonstration is what actually um, resonates with people, right? That you see people because even if you don't go on a even if you don't go on a strike, the recognition of your union is premised on your ability to on some level. Right. Right. And and the thing about the strike that makes it I mean, first of all, they look like so much fun, right? The teachers in West Virginia just look like they were having a great time. Um, and like I was saying that that's the the challenge is, you know, sticking around for the less fun parts. But also, right, it just, it, it is some, it sends a meaningful signal to people, right, that like we can actually come together and take action together. We can actually challenge power, right? And we are, despite not being in a moment of, of labor militancy, we are in a moment where more and more people are acutely feeling the inequality in our society and trying to figure out what the heck to do about that constantly, right? While also trying to figure out how to like, you know, eat and keep a roof over their heads. And so to look at this as a moment that like, you know, again, it may, it might not shake out to be great. It might shake out to be a lot of Medicaid cuts across the state of West Virginia that will really hurt people, but you you still have to look at it as a an important inflection point in, in just this ongoing shift of labor. And then, you know, again, we're, we're talking about all of this in the context of Janice, in the context of the public sector probably being all right to work very shortly. Um, and just labor law being chipped away and chipped away and chipped away until we're basically back in pre, um, Wagner Act pre-National Labor Relations Act conditions. And so then what do we do? We have to figure out something else because the collective bargaining regime that we've had since 1935 is basically dying. And that's precisely what I wanted to ask you about next. We have this Supreme Court ruling (laughs) coming 
up, um, which would have been decided a few years back had Justice Scalia not um, mercifully dropped dead just before he was about to cast the fifth five to four vote on a five to four vote uh, against public employee unions. Explain what Janice is, put it in the context of this broad running campaign to eviscerate public sector unions, political and economic power, and then then explain... It's a broad broad running campaign to just eviscerate unions, we should just say. Yes, yes, yes. This is the public sector end of that. Um, they went for the pri- they, they've they successfully decimated private sector unions. Yeah, I mean more than decimated. Um, so, right. So Janice, the case that Scalia died in the middle of was Friedrichs. Um, before that, there was Harris v. Quinn, which was it could have done what. Um, Janice will likely do, ended up sort of doing it only partially, as I mentioned, you know, Alito wrote into the decision that um, home care workers were only partial public employees, they weren't full public employees. So he didn't even, like, I was just at a conference with uh, Jennifer Klein, who was talking about this, and she was like, you know, he wanted to uh, get rid of public sector unions, but he actually just didn't think enough of home care workers to use them as the vector for that. So he basically wrote this decision that signaled to the people behind Janus, which is, among other things, the National Right to Work uh, Legal Defense Fund, which is almost as an or the as Orwellian a name as it gets, um, that they could, you know, send him a case where he could gut or where he could impose quote unquote right to work on um, the entire public sector. And so, you know, right to work is a terrible term. <laughs> it's really awful. Because it's up there with a lot pro-life. of people think it just means, yeah, I mean, even worse because like, we, you know, people know what, what it means to be quote unquote pro-life. Like what, I, I, you're anti-abortion. That's like, we know what that means. Right. A lot of people don't know what right to work laws actually do. And so in writing about this stuff, I continually have to like explain to editors what a right to work law is and is not. Um, what agency fees are, what happens when you don't have right to work. Because a lot of people think like a right to work state just means you don't have unions or a right to work state means that like you don't have collective bargaining rights. Um, that's not true, right? That what the condition of public sector workers in West Virginia is actually worse than what Janice would do. They have no collective bargaining rights at all. Um, Janice would leave you with collective bargaining rights. It would just make it very, very easy for people to take advantage of collective bargaining contracts without paying anything to the union. To free ride. And so it's a, you know, yeah, it's a strategy to defund unions by incentivizing people to not pay dues to the union. And so and what this is precisely doing what happened in Wisconsin. Are, this is what happened in Wisconsin. Um, this is what. Um, Well, Scott Walker also limited their actual collective bargaining rights in Wisconsin. So they are limited to being able to bargain over wages within a certain percentage of um, like every year. I don't know if it's the rate of inflation. I don't remember off the top of my head. I'm sorry. And yeah, but so what and then they passed a right to work law for the state after the Act 10 that kicked off the the protests in Wisconsin. Which means that they have to affirmatively proactively agree to pay union dues and are not automatically paying union dues right. as members of a collective Oh, and also unit. the public sector unions have to recertify, I think, like every year or something. It's, it's yeah, it's terrible. Um, but so what happens if the Janus case goes the way that it is likely to go is that 
public sector workers who are in bargaining units that are covered by a collective bargaining contract um, now have the right to just be like, peace, we're not paying you agency fees or fair share fees um, anymore. We are just going to sit on our butts and um, be covered by the higher wages and better insurance and better benefits that you have negotiated for us. And they're also doing like the same people who are funding these cases are doing a very proactive campaign around this, right? I was talking to a state worker from Oregon who was talking about the way that they, you know, they're seeing people like, you know, canvassing and saying, you know, oh, well, give yourself a raise uh, and stop paying union dues, right? This is the, the argument that they will make. And when you have austerity budgets in states where people are not getting raises for, you know, what is it? It's like nine or 10 years in Oklahoma that teachers haven't gotten a raise. That can be a really compelling argument, right? To say like, give yourself a raise. Um, especially if you don't feel connected to your union, if you feel like your union is just kind of this thing that you don't really see and you're not really part of, then, you know, it can be compelling to people to say like, well, just stop paying the money then. Um, and what actually has to happen for you to still have a strong and powerful union in a right to work state, which is a thing that is very possible. Um, they exist. They exist in uh, Las Vegas. Um, for example, the culinary workers union is everybody's favorite example of this, but, um, it's true. This is a really powerful service workers union in Vegas, which is, uh, you know, a, a weird oasis in the desert. And you have to actually, again, go by the newsies rule, right? You have to act like a union. You have to make sure that the workers feel like this is their union that they are a part of, that they own it, that it is not like some third party that they pay a fee to, but that it is actually workers in motion. Um, so basically every comes, everything comes back down to the Newsies rule. Which is if, uh, if you strike, if we strike, if we're we a strike union. Then we're a union or, you know, okay, we'll, we'll ex- expand that to if we take collective action, we are a union. So the strategy behind public sector, quote unquote, right to work, which was very successful in in Wisconsin, where union public sector union membership plummeted after was it 2011 yeah. when Scott Walker signed Act whatever. Uh, yes, I said. And the way it works, if I have it right, is it sort of like a downward spiral? Like you said, it's like uh, yeah. these right wing people will uh, mail or call you and be like, "Hey, you can save this much if you uh, don't pay union dues because you no longer." have to. And if you're already not making so much, then that is attractive. But also, like, once people stop doing that, once smaller numbers initially of people stop doing that, the union has fewer funds and thus becomes less effective and thus delivers less to their members, making union membership right. even less attractive. And so it's this it's this downward spiral that gets set, set into motion. The West Virginia teacher strike prompted a lot of people to start making a more optimistic analysis about what might happen or what could happen after Janice. And I want to know what you think of that. This is certainly what they intend to have happen. And it's probably going to happen in a lot of places, right? That's, you know, the the unfortunate fact, again, is that, you know, a lot of unions have not really prepared for this. Um, some 
couple of them have been. They've been, you know, trying to have conversations with their members to make sure they proactively sign people up as like full dues paying members, um, which is a different thing than just paying agency fees. Um, and, you know, in some places after Harris v. Clinton, they've actually had a lot of success. The same um, person that I was talking to in Oregon was saying that the most um, the highest number of, of contributions for political action from the union, right, were coming from home care workers, despite the fact that home care workers are now, quote unquote, right to work, um, that they had really done a successful job of, of keeping the home care workers engaged, which is really tough because home care workers work in people's homes. They don't work on a shop floor. It's very hard to sort of be in touch with all of them. There's long been criticism of the New Deal Wagner Act labor order because it was a compromise that did deliver substantive benefits to workers, but also was intended to to pacify them and institutionalize collective uh, relations between labor and, and capital in a way that's beneficial to to capital. That that said, I don't think anyone, or at least anyone I've seen, has been looking forward to Janice going away because it's going to like heighten the contradictions and bring back the the 1930s strike waves that led to the Wagner Act era. But I guess it seems like it's by no means a manner of saying like Janice will be good. Janice will uh, at least initially and probably for quite a while be be horrible. But it does give us a sense of what's going to be necessary, what the terrain of struggle will look like post-Janice. Does that seem seem fair? There are sort of two tendencies on on this stuff, right? And one is to sort of say that like well, I mean, I, I did say in, in my piece that collective bargaining was always a compromise, right? But like, we can say that labor in some sense, you know, should have seen this coming. We certainly should have seen this coming. Um, and that this is going to, you know, make things sort of clear. And, you know, that West Virginia shows us that you can still have strong unions again, right? Just like I was just talking about the culinary workers union. Um, and all of that is true. But then there is like, again, there's these sort of um, arguments that like, well, then this just makes it easier to have a bunch of working class radicalism. And I don't know if that's true either. Um, and of course, like the thing is, we don't know what's going to happen, right? We're seeing, um, again, a, a broader sort of understanding of inequality. Um, we're seeing millions of people across the country vote for a grumpy old Jewish guy who calls himself a socialist. Um, we have not seen, you know, a real increase in like strike frequency on a mass level. We're seeing, you know, pockets of it. Um, and it's also hard to measure places where people thought about going on strike and didn't, but I don't know. I, I hate predicting. I hate being asked to predict. <laughs> I try not to do it because you always look like an ass. Um, but I think that we are we're in a moment where we have to get very, very serious about what we're going to have to do to change things. And that is going to look like what happened in West Virginia. It's going to look like, um, you know, what happened last year on May Day and on the Days Without an Immigrant. It's going to look like you know, the women's march is going to look like the women's strike. It's going to look like the dreamers who marched from New York to D.C. this week and got arrested in, you know, congressmen's office, offices. Um, it's going to look like the grad students who were, 
not only on strike, but then occupy the university university offices. It's going to look like so many things because, you know, things are really bad. <laughs> and um, some people just woke up to that when Trump got elected. Others of us have been aware of it for a while, um, you know, and yeah, I don't know. It's like before Trump, I thought it was pretty incorrect when some on the left would sort of make the argument that, you know, it's it's better that Trump, though I don't think as many people ever made this argument as uh, as Hillary Kratz would caricature it as. But when people made the argument like, oh, if Trump if Trump wins, it'll be good because he'll he'll heighten the contradictions. Yeah. Obviously, I think that was a I bad mean, that, argument. Who's back? Right. Well, whose backs do the do the contradictions get heightened on? Right. That's always the question. But that said, the moment he was elected, I was like, well, now we have to hide in the contradictions. Well, you know, like, like I, I thought the prediction was <laughs> I thought the prediction was dumb. But once he became president, it was like what we had to work towards. And I think maybe the the same is true for for Janice. And we don't have the mass labor action of 36, 37, you know, sit down strikes right now. Um, but we do see some glimmers of hope and we do have the we do have a serious legitimacy crisis for the system which i think is the prerequisite for this type of mass militant action that we are going to need there's a there's a long way between system delegitimization and mass action but it's it is a step in that right. direction maybe the weird thing about this is like i think the system has already been delegitimized in a lot of ways like when we we were talking about people not voting right um, people don't vote not because they're like quote unquote apathetic or because they're stupid, which is what everybody likes to think, right? Which is a stupid and, and lazy way to describe it. Like, <laughs> right, exactly. People don't vote because they feel like there's nothing they can do. They feel like it's not going to change anything, right? There was this great um, piece about Wisconsin, actually, in the New York Times a few days after the election, where this, you know, the reporter was talking to a bunch of just, you know, just people in, in Milwaukee. It was just going into like barbershops and, and restaurants and saying to people, you know, we, you know, what did you vote for? What did you think of the election? How do you feel about, you know, whatever? And you just got people who were like, I voted for Obama twice and shit got worse. So I didn't vote or, you know, one guy wrote in himself, which I thought was great. Um, you know, they, they, these were people who just looked around at everything and said, like, well, I could, like, take off work early to go vote for somebody who's not going to do anything for me, or I could stay at work and, you know, make an hour's extra wages. Um, these are rational decisions that people make because they think the system doesn't function. And so, you know, the question of, like, then what is the real thing that we're we've we've since 2008, certainly, we've been in a sort of post-capitalist realist society, but we haven't come up with a then what. And that's the real problem. Um, so, you know, we have to think about the struggles against things, but also like, okay, what do we want to win? And how are we going to do that? Because like, we can't sort of just have a, a left version of Make America Great Again, where we go back to the you know, the welfare state of the New Deal era in the U.S. or, you know, the post-war era in Europe. And yeah, global capital is not going to accept that. And all the tools that they developed in the 70s and 80s are still here and they're still using them largely successfully. And so, you know, it's not just a question of like delegitimizing the system. It's a question of giving people a next something that they actually feel motivated by. And that's the real, you know, question and challenge. 
Well, Sarah Jaffe, thanks so much for coming back on. And thanks to you too, Gabriel Winnett, uh, even though you are already gone. Sorry, Gabe. Thanks for being here. Sarah Jaffe is the author of Unnecessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. And Gabriel Winnett is a labor historian who has written a lot of great work and who will no doubt have a book out sometime in the future that you'll really want to read. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that there are indications that the period is not very distant when this desultory warfare will be turned into a systematic and universal combination against capital. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, often twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. All propaganda on our behalf, including telling your friends about the show, is greatly appreciated. And please find us on Patreon and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks a month is a big help. (laughs) 